0: This morning, as we have been for the last few weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke one more time. Until actually January, we're going to take a break. But we're in Luke chapter 18 this morning. This week, as well as last week, the Gospel of Luke confronts us with provocative questions. Through the preaching of last week's passage... Luke is it was as though Luke was asking us, Who is truly rich and who is poor? In the passage we learned that on the one hand there was a man who had everything but didn't have Jesus, and there were those who left everything but had Jesus, and we were in a sense asked who is truly rich? And who in that situation is poor? This week we're asked a similar but different provocative question. Namely, who is it that sees? There are those with physical eyes that work just fine. But they don't see, don't understand all all that Jesus is for them. And then there's one man whose eyes don't work. He's physically blind. But he sees something in Jesus that perhaps others weren't seeing. And in that Story, in these stories, who truly sees? The ones that physicalize or spiritualize? Follow along with me here as I read from Luke chapter 18. I'm going to be reading verses 31 through 43. After I read the passage, I'll pray that God would be our teacher and we'll dive into studying it in detail. Luke 18, starting in verse 31. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Continuing in verse 35, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what it meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And they cried out, or excuse me, he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer as we begin to study it in more detail? Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be those who have sight, true sight. The eyes of faith that see us as we really are. As those in need of your grace and your mercy. But also those who see you as you really are. Big and strong and powerful and gracious towards your children. Help us to see these things more clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In this passage, an offer is being made. And it's a wonderful offer. It's an offer to see more of Jesus, to understand him more deeply, to be a part of his mission, to have his forgiveness and healing. These are wonderful things. But to have them, and certainly to have them more deeply, means to embrace and continue to embrace humility. Since this passion fo- or passage falls out roughly in two sections, I want to just take each in turn, starting here with what Jesus said and what Luke comments about the disciples in verses thirty-one through thirty-four. This first section, I want to be asking the question: Why don't they, the disciples, see? Why don't they understand? I to be using those words interchangeably a lot: see and understand. We we do that very often and you know, conversation will say, do you understand? And you say, no, yeah, I see, I see, right? So there's seeing as this metaphor for understanding. And we want to ask the question, why didn't they see? Why didn't they understand? The passage begins, actually, the story in verse 35 begins with a traveling note. Um, we're looking at the first part of the passage, but I just want to key on that traveling note for a second notes have been sprinkled throughout Luke's gospel about where Jesus is at and where he's traveling um, to help us as readers not only keep track of where he's at in each part of the story but also where he's going and for that matter where the gospel of Luke is going the gospel of Luke is going to Jerusalem before it goes to the ends of the earth and in this passage, Jesus is around Jericho, which is sort of like saying Jesus is traveling from the Midwest to Harrisburg, but in the process, he's just passed through Carlisle, which is to say he's starting to get close. And along the way, as he's going to the cross, Jesus reminds his closest followers several times of things he's told them several times. He just keeps reminding them of what is sometimes called his passion. This passage here is the third passion prediction. I don't know if you've heard that language before, but the last week of Jesus' life, when we talk about the Easter week, we sometimes refer to it as passion week. It's the week he goes to the cross and he rises from the dead. Fifteen years ago, there was the Mel Gibson movie, right? The passion of the Christ. That's why it had that title. And as Jesus speaks to his disciples here, predicting his passion, he uses seven verbs seven action words six of them refer to his humiliation he's handed over he's mocked he's treated shamefully he's spit upon he's flogged and then finally says he's killed of course there's a seventh verb as well it says at the end of verse 33 jesus says on the third day he will rise jesus is promising that the story of victory is going to look a lot lot first Like a story of defeat. And speaking of defeat, there's a strange phrase there in verse 33. At least it would have been strange to have heard by these disciples. Jesus says he's, quote, delivered over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles? Like what? I mean, the disciples would have heard this. They would have heard the Old Testament overtones of this phrase. When God's people, in the Old Testament, they stacked sin upon sin, and dishonesty upon infidelity, and injustice upon indifference, God used the wrath of two Gentile nations to crush his people. Just using round numbers, somewhere around 750 BC, God delivered his people up to the Gentile nation of Assyria. And then it was in six hundred BC that it was the Gentile nation of Babylon. And when Babylon came, they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. I mean just I know Harrisburg isn't Jerusalem, but you p- picture it as so we had walls and they surround the city of Jerusalem, and eventually there's a breach in the wall, and the armies come in and they destroy the capital, leveling it to the ground. And now the Gentiles were going to crush the Son of Man, the Messiah? This would have been hard to understand. In fact, as I'm going through this passage on my own, just studying it in these preceding weeks, I'm working through it kind of verse by verse. just printed it out on a piece of paper. And literally, I hadn't read through the whole thing at first. I'm just going verse by verse. And when I came to this verse, here's what I wrote to the side. Surely these statements about defeat by Jesus were nearing the fringe of, if not already exceeding, the disciples' ability to understand what Jesus was talking about. That's what I literally wrote. And then I came to verse 34 and I was like, oh, it seems seems I was on to something here. This is the natural conclusion. Look at what verse 34 says. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. We have come to the limit, so to speak, of the disciples' understanding, at least at this time. So I want to come back to okay. The question I'm asking here at this first part is why didn't they understand? Why didn't they see? My first impulse is to suspect. If this is the right impulse to have at first or not, but my first impulse is to suspect that some sort of mysterious divine sovereignty is going on. What I mean is that for some mysterious reason, Jesus wants to predict about his sacrificial death that's that's coming, but he's doing it in such a way that the full understanding of that is veiled to them so that maybe he can turn on the lights in a brighter way after his resurrection. Maybe he has this mysterious plan that that's better for them. That's better for us. And in fact, that's exactly what happens in Luke's gospel. Luke 24, Jesus shows up after the resurrection and he takes them to the Old Testament scriptures and they realize, oh yeah, it was there all the time. So maybe there's a mysterious divine sovereignty going on why they didn't understand. But I started thinking about this more. And I think there are more plain reasons that lead us to understand and then, in fact, see applications to our own lives why they didn't understand this story of a Messiah that wins a victory that looks like defeat, at least at first. What are those reasons? Well, at least two of them, two reasons they might have been prevented from seeing fully what Jesus was doing was that they were selectively choosing what passages of the Old Testament to emphasize. They had selectively held up some passages and not others. And that had problems to it. And the other reason was their pride. go through each of these in turn. First, let's talk about picking and choosing expectations about the Messiah. In the mind of these disciples, Messiahs don't go to the cross, not to die. And certainly not at the hands of Gentiles. When a Messiah rides into Jerusalem, he does so, well, we would say on a white horse, they would say on a donkey, and he doesn't go to a cross. He goes to a throne, and he establishes a kingdom that immediately and always goes up and to the right only, and it's understandable in a sense why they would have thought these things. The people of God, if we could just go back in time and sit with them at a campfire and just tell us about, say, tell us about your history. They would have said that they are a people that have experienced a beat down with only moments of reprieve here and there. First, it was Assyria, as I said, and then it was Babylon. And then when you come to the book of Esther, it's The nation of Persia. And then in the intertestamental period. It's the Greeks. And then becomes the Romans. Who in fact are still the Romans. At the time of the first century. And what had happened during this time. This time of suffering. And subjugation. Is that they had looked into the Old Testament. And they had seen these wonderful. Lofty triumphant promises. That were given to the people of God. And they lifted those up. And kind of sort of just ignored the way of suffering, the way of the cross. And what was always going to be two things, a costly victory, in their minds just sort of became one thing. Something like this happened to me once, forgetting that one thing was really two things. In a sermon a few years ago, this has been a few years ago, I, I referred to um, a number of the unfortunate travel mishaps that happened on my honeymoon. I don't know how many of you are here a few years ago for that. You seem to greatly enjoy it. Um, hearing about the ridiculous, um, mistakes I made on my honeymoon related to travel and including the one time ending up in a dark alley where I was offered drugs and it seemed like we, my wife and I were just on the verge of being mugged and perhaps murdered. You really enjoyed that story as I remember it. Um, I'm not sure why you enjoyed it so much. But I'll tell you another one just briefly. I, Again, the, the travel mistakes I made. I mean, the, the first one was just booking this, this, this country we were going to go to. It's an island country. And we were like, why is it so cheap? This is awesome. It's a rainforest we found out in the rainy season. Um, that's why it was more inexpensive than it should have been. Um, but in the midst of getting married, it felt like there was a thousand details to keep track of. We were, I was also going to graduate from college at the time. I was moving to a new city. I needed to find a job in that new city. There's just so many things to keep track of. And so we booked the trip and rainy season, rainforest, oh, bummer. We figured, you know, and it rained seven of the eight days or whatever, six of the seven, whatever it was. But at the time to travel to this country 14 years ago, you didn't need a Passport. And I remember researching that very carefully. Uh, and people would ask me, hey, oh, you're going there. That sounds cool. Do you need a passport? And I'd say, no, you actually to go there. You don't need a passport. But the full story was not that you didn't need a passport to travel to this country. But if you didn't go with a passport, you needed an official birth certificate from the state you were born. in. And one of the travel mistakes I made was I began to somehow in my mind lose that second part. <laughs> So in the midst of all the details, that people would ask, do you need a, travel, you know, a passport? No, you don't need a passport. And two very important things just became one in my mind. Until I showed up at, with Brooke at Miami International Airport, and the woman there at the counter of American Airlines, very kind but f- firm woman, said in no uncertain terms, you will not be leaving the country. You can take your bags back to the hotel, I guess. And we we're like, oh, what do we do? This was a big mistake. And we spent the next uh, few days, or actually I was just the next few hours, finding very sweet people in each of our Missouri and Iowa to send us our birth certificates overnight, which we had to go to FedEx. FedEx, Volker. Uh, and we pounded on the doors early in the morning, begging that they would let us have, someone would go into the, the, you know, unload them off a truck and give them to us immediately. And we caught standby, and we made it to the rainforest in the rainy season. Um, These disciples... I think they meant well. They're like us. And in many ways, we're like them. It's possible to look at the teachings of Jesus and pick and choose those that seem to most warm our hearts and ignore the rest. Oh, I like it when Jesus tells me he loves me. But this thing about carrying the cross and following after him. And I love it when Jesus tells me to bring his problems to him. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? These familiar, beloved passages of Scripture. But to bring my problems to Jesus means I actually have to admit that I have problems. The disciples couldn't understand why the Messiah was going to the cross because perhaps they stopped thinking about passages like Isaiah 53. Stop thinking these passages applied to their victorious Messiah. And Jesus has said, all of the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled in me as I go towards Jerusalem, and they weren't thinking of Isaiah 53, which speaks of the Messiah as one who will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We read that, quote, He is wounded by his wounds we are healed, and then it goes on to say he's going to be like a lamb that's led to slaughter. Remember, we're asking the question, why didn't these disciples understand? I think one reason that they missed out, we miss out on savoring all that Jesus is for us is because we tend to selectively read the Bible, thinking we know better which passages we should major on and the ones that seem at least immediately most relevant to us and ignoring the others. And when we do this, we miss out on all that Jesus is for us. I think the other reason the disciples would have missed out on their understanding of what Jesus was doing for them is their pride, our pride. I keep mentioning that this passage was the third passion prediction, which means there were two others where Jesus is speaking about his coming death. I want to go back to... The passion prediction number two in Luke's gospel. So we're in 18. Let's go back to chapter 9 for just a few moments. This is how Jesus' second passion prediction reads in chapter 9. It's shorter, but listen to the commentary that sits around it. You can flip there if you like or it will be on the screen. We're in Luke chapter 9, starting in the middle of verse 43. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Mark verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is an odd juxtaposition, isn't it? I'm going to the cross. Oh, by the way, which one of us is better than the other? (laughs) Now, is there some sort of mysterious divine sovereignty going on that is hiding the meaning of the cross from them, at least at this time, so that later they're going to understand it better when Jesus is risen from the dead? I, I do think something like that is going on. But they're culpable in their misunderstanding. And it says the reason why. They were afraid to ask. When in Jesus' ministry has He ever rebuked them for humbly, sincerely asking a, a question that they didn't understand? I mean, He's rebuked people and would continue to do so throughout His ministry, and we're thankful for that. But these humble, sincere questions, He's never sent them away. But they don't want to ask a question. Because they don't want to look stupid. Because they're about to break into an argument about who's better than the other one. And surely the person who's better than the other one already understands everything there is to understand. Our pride keeps us from seeing who Jesus is. That's the point made in Luke chapter 9. So we were in 18, we went back to 9. But when we come back to 18 and we read this second story... I think it's the exact same point is being made. Now, we don't have a story here at the end of our passage about the disciples arguing about who's the greatest, but what we do have is them rebuking a blind guy because he's not really worthy of Jesus' time, the time that apparently they were worthy of, which is not unlike what they were doing at the beginning of chapter 18, rebuking children for coming to Jesus Let's look at this miracle story here, verse 35 through 43. We're going to see that the disciples had, this blind man has one thing the disciples didn't have, humility. Verse 35, reading it one more time. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. He, He can't see. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, or excuse me, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I mean, the story is relatively straightforward, isn't it? The man can't see what's going on, so he asks others to tell him what goes on. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by, so he shouts for healing. In very similar language to what the tax collector shouted out, Have mercy on me, tax collector from earlier in chapter 18. Now at first he's rebuked, so he shouts louder. He perhaps pounds on something, waves his hand, gets attention, becomes slightly obnoxious. Jesus stops. Jesus speaks. Jesus heals. The man follows, and everyone glorifies God. It's fairly straightforward. Now, this passage is wonderful by itself. We could have really just taken this passage by itself, and it could have been wonderful. But I think where Luke, when we realize where Luke has located this story, in his gospel, I think it becomes even more wonderful. This blind man can't see with his physical eyes, but he sees with the eyes of his heart where his pride kept the disciples from understanding, this man has no pride left. He's a blind beggar. And when he learns that it's Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, perhaps he thinks about something he's heard about Jesus. It was in Nazareth that Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, begins his public ministry after his baptism. And he begins in Nazareth with a sermon. He goes into... I guess a synagogue, almost like a church, as it were. And he goes in there and he reads from this Isaiah scroll. And in Luke chapter 4, he turns to a passage we read uh, that goes like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus sat down after that sermon, we read in Luke chapter 4 that he looked around and he said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the scripture I'm reading about from Isaiah, that Isaiah spoke long ago, is fulfilled today. You're experiencing it. You're going to experience it now. And in another place in Luke's gospel... John the Baptist comes on the scene early in the gospel. But out of his faithfulness to Jesus, he gets thrown in prison. And it seems like his understanding of Jesus while he's in prison seems to waver. Perhaps we can relate to that. And so from prison, John sends messengers to Jesus to question Jesus. And this is what Jesus tells those messengers. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. And lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. Maybe this blind beggar had heard these stories. The stories of Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth. The stories of John and the messengers. And if... He hadn't heard them. He had heard other things, surely, to come to the conclusion that Jesus can heal me. My brokenness I can bring to him. And maybe his humble estate made him unafraid to come to Jesus with his problem. Maybe his humility made it so he didn't care when peer pressure was telling him to knock it off. You're getting too emotional about Jesus. You're getting too worked up. You're into this whole Jesus thing too much. Just cool it down a little bit. He doesn't care about you that much. Maybe it was his humility that left him undeterred. Maybe it was his humility that when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for me? He didn't have any hesitation in saying, I have a problem, would you fix it? But I should be careful, I suppose. I should be careful because I I don't want to imply... Whatever problem you have, if you bring it to Jesus and you're just humble, immediately it's going to get fixed. Right? You just bring your p- problem to Jesus and as quickly as you bring it, as quickly as it's gone. If I implied this, I suppose we'd be back in the first part of the sermon of picking and choosing passages of Scripture. Because if you have a problem and you take it to God, it, He might not fix it immediately. He often has His own purposes for beginning a healing that then goes on through the rest of our lives. In fact, that's part of the reason we're going to spend 10 weeks, starting next week in the Old Testament book of Job. It's the story of suffering, nearly unimaginable suffering, that lingers far longer than it. Job would have had it linger. And in the midst of it, he's referred to as godly. His sin wasn't because of his Or his suffering wasn't because of his sin. And God didn't fix him immediately. So we have to be careful. But I also would be remiss if I didn't say that too often our pride keeps us from all of the joy and all of the forgiveness and all of the healing that Jesus would love to give us. It was about this time last year so August, September, then into October. It's about this time last year that our church was in the process of selling buildings and purchasing this one and moving out and moving in and beginning and planning the renovations. And at that time, I was still keeping up my regular share of the preaching load as well as leading or doing whatever else it is that I do. And I was trying to keep up and do it all and make sure the building plans were submitted on time, which they weren't. And I think it's fair to say aspects of my pride kept me from reaching out and just saying, guys, I need help. <laughs> this, this is more than I'm going to be able to do well anyway, but let alone on top of everything else. It was in part my pride that kept me from going to Jason. I said, Jason, can I like preach less and you preach more? Would you do that? And going to the other elders and saying, hey, could we restructure things? Which, of course, they were all glad to do. And in fact, they ended up doing not so much because I was so humble to ask for it, but more because they were so uh, uh, observant going, this isn't working. (laughs) Which I'm thankful for that, too. And so I ask, how many marriages are crumbling, but you find it difficult to ask for help? How many are struggling with depression? And it's hidden. You don't see it on Sundays, but it's there. How many are struggling with financial problems? How many are struggling with sexual sin? These struggles are real and they are in our midst. But we often pretend that they're not there, so I don't know, so we can be the greatest disciples. I mean, just to be very pointed in sort of a humorous way, but also a serious one, how many small group Bible studies and how many Sunday schools become incredibly lame because everybody there has questions, but they don't want to ask them because they don't want to be the person that doesn't know all the answers already. I mean, mean, I've taught many adult Sunday school classes, and I just... Confession here. I know there are aspects of teaching that I could grow in, but I just leave many adult Sunday schools going. This was incredibly lame because I know there are tons of questions and no one will ask any of them. Which, of course, is nothing more than reliving Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They covered themselves with fig leaves and their pride kept them from God. As I close, I'll say this. It was about five years ago. I'm interviewing here at this church, thinking about what it would mean to move here. And it's a long, drawn-out process, more than half a year. And at the time, Jason's preaching through the gospel of Mark. And in fact, when I got here, we continued to do that and finished it out. But at the time, he's preaching through Mark's gospel. And one particular Sunday, he comes to a passion prediction in Mark's gospel. A place where Jesus speaks of being handed over. Mocked, treated shamefully, spit upon, flogged, and finally killed. And then, of course, is going to rise. And I remember texting Jason and saying, how did the sermon go? Like, I'm not here, right? I'm in another city. And how did it go? And Jason uh, writes back, well, not good. But then I read the passage and everybody got saved. (laughs) which is classic Jason, right? Uh, He's making a joke, though, like... If you can't preach the gospel when Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise, like, you shouldn't be a gospel preacher, is what he was saying. Because it's just right there, front and center in the passage. But the special emphasis I want to bring out this morning, as we talk about the passion of the Christ, as we read Jesus speak of his own passion, his going to the cross and rising again. The special thing I want to highlight is this. When the Messiah goes to the cross. Which is the greatest event in the history of the world. Coupled with his resurrection. He makes time for a blind beggar. That seems to just annoy everybody else. I said at the start something wonderful is on offer in this passage. I believe that. Jesus is offering to us more of himself, to understand him more deeply, to be a part of his mission, to have more of his forgiveness, more of his healing. I believe in a sense the question that Jesus asks this man, he could turn, we could turn and flip it to all of us and say, what do you want me to do for you? What pain, what burden, what sorrow, what struggle, what depression are you carrying? Now to take it to Him is going to mean acknowledging your need and your, for healing and forgiveness and strength. It's going to take humility to ask. But do it anyway. Do it anyway. I'm going to close in prayer and invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, how like you in the gospel to take the very things that are required of us and make even those requirements a thing that is for our good. What I mean is for you to require humility of us it simply means to trade our fig leaves for To be clothed in your righteousness. To be clothed in your love. To be clothed and showered in your grace. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see. See, one, our, to be honest about the struggles in our own lives. But also the eyes to see you. As a father that loves his children dearly. A a father that's sending the Messiah to work a costly business. Victory. A victory that looks like a story of defeat that ends in triumphant, glorious glory. Help us to see this more clearly. And ourselves as part of your story as well. We pray all this in Christ's name.